Again, I think you may not have got a chance to meet our guests, but I want to warmly welcome you. Glad to have you with us and joining us today. And uh, those of you that uh, are just, uh, maybe you came and you you didn't get to to introduce yourself, but we warmly welcome you here and welcome to SFBC. It's uh, good to have many of you out-of-towners as well. I see coming as returning guests always in the midst and just a uh, just it's, it's kind of neat because I know like on, on Mother's Day, a lot of people, you know, go with their moms or their moms come with them. And it's so good to have you with, with us here. I just want to take time this morning, even before we get to the sermon, just to, just, to take, just to say a word about moms and just remember our moms that are the many moms that are in our midst. Uh, so glad to have you here all with us because you, uh, you are a blessing. You are a gift from God to us. You know, God has given to us our mothers, hasn't he not? He's given to us mothers who... Uh, from the very first mother, Eve, the, the bearer of life, um, we have, every person in this world has been blessed by a mom who has borne us into life. Uh, their moms, too, as are, are given to us as examples of love. Uh, we think about how God ordained uh, moms to, to nurture us from the very earliest of days when we're, you know, still just little small cells, cones of cells in our mother's womb. Uh, God gave us moms even then to, to nourish and care for us and, cheer and, and to protect us in their wombs. You know, I always think about how outside of God, moms really are, are the first ones to ever love us. You know, uh, you, you know when, when, that, when we were in our mom's womb, our moms were already sacrificing for us. They were already looking out for our good, uh, just caring for their own bodies, making sure they eat well because of you know, the baby that's grown inside. And I just always thank God for our moms and that they really loved us first among all the people in this world, even before our dads, for sure. And for the majority of us, our moms uh, love us through the, continue, through the rest of our lives, don't they not? And I think today, you kind of think about your mom, you, you can probably name, think about the times where your mom, maybe she, no, she wasn't perfect, I knew we know that, no, no mom is, but how many times they showed us their love, sacrificing for us, for our good. You know, every mom is really an example of God's sacrificial love, aren't they not? Moms endure so much pain, so much sacrifice for their children. We thank God for you moms. I also just want to take time even this morning. I know it may come across a little awkward because I'm a guy and I'm a man. And so, but uh, if you will, just let me be pastor for a little bit. And, and I just want to take time to remember to you, even... The moms here that that uh, uh, that maybe don't have children right now, uh, moms in a sense that because uh, I, I know the Mom's Day is pretty hard for those of you who are trying to have children and and can't. Maybe you've had a miscarriage even, uh, or ladies in the church who want, and you've had a miscarriage and you know uh, for those month, two months, three months even that was uh, the time for you to be a mom and. Uh, and I know that it was hard, probably, when uh, for you to lose that child. But um, and you know, miscarriages are kind of like the a silent pain. You just no one knows about it. No one knows about it. But you and your spouse, and maybe a few close friends. Um, whereas we may not know, um, and I definitely will never know what it means to be a mother to lose a child. That's not going to just not going to be what I'll ever experience. But God knows. God knows how much you love that child. And I just, I just want you to know that. He knows. And uh, so on this day, we remember our moms. We remember also those of you 
who are wanting to be moms, but they can't, and maybe particularly you lost, lost one miscarriage, usually it's multiple miscarriages, and um, this day's hard, and I understand, and, and um, just remember you. God knows. So for all our moms here today, young and old, uh, whether you, uh, you are an experienced mom, your kids are all raised up and grown out of the home, uh, whether you're just starting out, uh, whether, <clears throat> wherever, you know, <clears throat> no matter what stage of motherhood you are, we, we thank God for you. We remember you. Uh, all the, oh, just think about all the, the aches that a mother feels. Uh, but uh, we just want to tell you, uh, uh, we really appreciate it. We appreciate all your, the pains you go for on our behalf. Thank you for being the bearers of life, examples of love, especially as Christian moms. We thank you for being examples of faith. Let's pray for our moms and as we come to the text this morning. Father in heaven, we thank you this day, particularly when we remember our moms. For you give us moms. You give us from, <coughs> you give us uh, these, uh, these women in our lives who, who bear, bear us and bring us into this world. You give us moms who care for us, sacrificially loving us who, especially if they're as Christian moms, they, they exemplify us for what it means to, to have faith, to trust in you, to trust in your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray your blessing upon the moms in our midst. We pray that you would uh, 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 even surround them with encouragement from their children. Pray that you would surround them with this appreciation even from this church family. Lord, May you can give them your, your sense of your pleasure and your, that you're of, with them for they have been faithful as moms. And Lord, we just pray even uh, for, uh, for, those, uh, for those ladies in the, in the church who have had miscarriage and, and lost children. And though they, I don't know what, if they think of themselves as moms, but, but they are. And we pray that you would, Lord, comfort them on this particular day. And, and Lord, may you in your perfect timing even grant them, according to your will, children that they would be able to raise up in this world. Lord, we just thank you, Father, for how moms just point us to you, how you care. You give us life. And it's you who sacrificially provide for us all that we need. So we thank you, Father, for your love towards us and how you demonstrate that love through our moms. We pray now as we look to your word, and open it up, may you teach us now, cause us to remember you, even as we remember our moms this day, to never forget you, to never forget how great you are. Teach us now, we pray, may your spirit lead us into the truth, bring you be glorified through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. All right. Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me then to that most famous Mother's Day passage, Isaiah 17 and 18. Okay, so <laughs> we have, for those of you that are new with us, we're just, we're just going through Isaiah. We're working through Isaiah, and um, we're now on Isaiah 17 to 18. So that's where we're going to be at today, and, and pray that uh, it would be encouragement to all of you, moms included, especially. Okay. As we've been doing, uh, since the passages are quite long, we're going to read them as we go throughout the sermon, so we will uh, we'll not be reading it uh, to begin this morning. 
Well, today, as we remember our moms, just as we remember moms, today's text encourages us to remember our God. That's what this passage does. It calls the people of God to remember God, to not forget him. You all know that we need God for eternal life. Uh, we, we need him. We need Jesus. We need his son through in his death on the cross and there's the resurrection of the grave that through faith in him we might have forgiveness of sins and have life. But we tend to forget that we also need him, need God, need Christ for all of life. And there are times when we just go on living as if we don't need God. We, we leave him out of the picture. We live life not depending on his son, not depending upon his spirit, not looking to his word, not calling upon his strength, not seeking his wisdom, nor depending upon his sufficient grace. And when we do these things, we essentially, in effect, forget God. We leave him out. And when we do so, we set ourselves up for agony and despair. As we look to chapter 17 and 18 today of Isaiah, we come to the fourth of ten oracles of God's judgment upon the nations. And as we've covered many times, these ten oracles are Isaiah 13, and found in Isaiah 13 to 23 are given to the people of Judah to encourage God's people to not trust in the nations. Not trust in the nations as a source of power, whether it's politics, it's power, it's people, but instead to trust in the Lord. Our trust must be in God, who is our God. Now, we've already examined the very first oracle, which was against Babylon. And Babylon was listed first, if you remember, because of Babylon's kind of biblical significance as a figurative, figurative, figure for the world in rebellion against God. Then God, of course, began pronouncing a series of judgments, or oracles of nations surrounding Judah. We looked at, just very briefly, oh boy, you can't really see it very well, but you know, to the kind of near the bottom right, you see Judah, and then there are these nations surrounding them. There was an oracle against Philistia to the west of Judah, kind of where, where the city of Gaza is located. Then last time we looked at the oracle against Moab, which is to the east of Judah. You know, on this map, it kind of looks just straight up to the, to the east of, Mo, of Judah, Moab. And then today, we're going to look at God's oracle or burden upon Syria or Damascus, really. Damascus is the, And Damascus is in that region, that purple region, kind of near the top. And it's called Aram, because in the biblical times it was called Aram. But in the modern day, we just call it Syria. But while this oracle, as we're going to discover, is concerning Damascus, it's, what's kind of neat about this, or interesting about this, is that as this oracle begins focusing on Damascus, it sort of expands. It expands as it progresses to eventually include not only the northern kingdom, Ephraim, the then, but then all of Israel, and eventually all the nations of the earth. It's kind of like, you know, whenever you use cameras and you have a zoom lens, and you can zoom real close and get a good, you know, tight picture. It sort of begins like that. It begins with a tight picture. But then it, as you zoom out, it begins to focusing on another larger group of people, and then it focuses you further out to where the nations. So that's kind of how we're going to, uh, that's sort of the outline today of this, of, uh, this oracle against Damascus, this judgment upon Damascus that God pronounces. And so for us today, we're going to look at three, then, three points to our message, three focuses of the burden of Damascus, this judgment upon Damascus, that encourage the people of God to remember their God, to remember their God. Because uh, it is so easy to, and it was very, uh, for the people of God to, for, to forget God and to depend instead upon the nations like Damascus. But God wants his people to trust in him, to remember him, to trust in their maker, to trust in the God of their salvation, to trust in the rock of refuge. 
that's what we're going to look at this morning. So, uh, with, anything, with that, let's look at the first point. As this oracle and burden upon, of Damascus begins with a, a very zoomed-up focus upon, well, naturally, Damascus itself. Uh, point number one, it focuses on Damascus and as well as Ephraim, Ephraim being the name for the northern kingdom. We see this in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 17. Uh, let's read chapter 17, verses 1 to 3. The oracle, and there's our uh, key word again throughout this text. It's been the oracle, also often translated burden. The burden concerning Damascus. Behold, Damascus is about to be removed from being a city and will become a fallen ruin. The cities of Aurora are forsaken. They will be for flocks to lie down in, and there will be no one to frighten them. The fortified city will disappear from Ephraim and sovereignty from Damascus and the remnant of Aram. They will be like the glory of the sons of Israel, declares the Lord of hosts. And so this, this focus, this judgment, pronouncement, begins with Damascus, begins with this, this city of Damascus. Now, Damascus in those days is a city, uh, so, sort of began as really as a city-state, but then it expanded its influence uh, to the surrounding nations, and it really became... Uh, and, was that surrounding area, that region is called Aram, Aram, or uh, sometimes the, the people are called the Arameans, and, but modern day, we just call it Syria. It, became, it, it was the early nation that would become the nation of Syria. Uh, many of you who are following your news uh, will have heard of Damascus. It's, it is still the capital of Syria today, in fact, and, um, and uh, it was the capital of Aram in the biblical times as well. It is mentioned as a city as early as uh, Abraham's days uh, in Genesis 14, 15. So this city is quite old. In fact, it's around, estimated to be around 4,000 years old. What's kind of the neat thing about Damascus and, and that uh, scholars say is that it is the oldest continually inhabited city in the world. The oldest continually inhabited city in the world. And that, that means basically of all the cities in the world, some cities, they'll, they'll, they'll just die out. And maybe, you know, a couple hundred years later, someone else might come live there. But Damascus, there's always, as long as it's been a city, there's always been someone living, inhabiting this city. So for 4,000 years, someone has lived there. It's kind of cool. I mean, just kind of imagine just going out to Damascus. I mean, some of you have been to Damascus. I'd love to go there. I just saw, I was kind of researching. It's like, oh, wow. There's some of these biblical terms, like in Acts, where they talk about the straight road. These roads are still in Damascus. You can actually go to these places. It's really cool. And, and they're just, it's just a lot of neat archaeology. I love archaeology. So uh, it's really cool. Anyways, now, Damascus is significant for our biblical text because it's part of the setting of this text. If you remember chapter 7 of Isaiah, of Isaiah what happened? What's significant about Damascus? The king of Aram, the king of Damascus, really, and the king of the northern kingdom, Israel, they joined together in alliance. They allied together in war against the southern kingdom. And you can see, read this in Acts chapter 7 later on if you want to go back to that. They joined together against King Ahaz, uh, the king of Judah. And they wanted to basically take out Judah, take out Ahaz, and replace him with their own puppet king so that in force, forcing Judah to join with them to be kind of some, another nation that they can control. We had already, when we looked at Moab, if you recall, they had actually had Moab join them in the rebellion as well. And so they wanted to create this alliance uh, so that they could resist the, the mightier Assyrian Empire. 
And so this is all kind of politics, politics as usual, just like in our days, there's, there's kind of politics. The nations kind of ally with one another and try to maneuver to have more power and control over the, the threats around them. But when Aram or Damascus and the king of Damascus and the king of uh, Israel came in to attack the king of Judah, in fact, they probably, it sounds like they, the text, the biblical text sounds like they besieged the city even. God sent Isaiah to King Ahaz and told him that he would not have to fear. Don't fear. Why? Because God says these, this, this scheme that Aram and Israel are, are making will not succeed. It will not stand. And that, in fact, that in a few years, Aram would be destroyed. In fact, back chapter, chapter 8, verse 4, the destruction of, of Aram was promised by God that they would be defeated by Assyria. And this oracle now in verses 1 to 3 is just a simply confirmation, a repeat of it. For Judah to not be afraid of Damascus because Damascus would be destroyed, as we see here. It would be removed from being a Saudi. It would become a fallen ruin. It would be, uh, sovereignty from Damascus will, be, will disappear, and, which we see in the latter half of verse 3. And this was fulfilled in 732 B.C. According to 2 Kings 16, verse 7 through 9, uh, it's uh, it's very ironic. There's a story there that God God even used Ahaz's failure to trust in God to bring it about. When we looked at chapter seven, or when we looked at chapter seven, we looked at the story of this story of how basically Ahaz didn't trust in God. He didn't ask. He didn't even want the sign. He rejected the sign, or if you recall, the sign of the job. He didn't, so God had to give him the sign. But instead, Ahaz, what did he do? He took the money, the gold, the silver from the temple, and he then gave it. To the king of Assyria. He gave to the king of Assyria, basically bought the king of Assyria's protection. And so it, the king of Assyria came then, according to 2 Kings chapter 16, verse 9, we can read there, the king of Assyria listened to Ahaz. The king of Assyria went up against Damascus and captured it and carried the people of it away into exile to Kerr and put Rizan, uh, which is the king, of Assyria, the king of Aram, to death. And so we see God prophesies or through Isaiah that Damascus would be destroyed. But Damascus would not be destroyed alone. We see here in the rest, in, also in the middle sections of verse 1 to 3, that the northern kingdom, Ephraim, would also be destroyed. In verse 2 there, the mention of the city Aurora, that is a city that's not found in Damascus. It's not found in Syria. In fact, instead, it's found in the southernmost, the southernmost parts of, of Israel, the northern kingdom. And so this, this verse, chapter two, verse 2, and as well as the first part of verse 3, are really, it's really a description of the destruction of Ephraim. Now, why do I call Ephraim the northern kingdom? Because Ephraim was the largest tribe, if you recall. Just like the southern kingdom is called Judah after its largest tribe as well. So sometimes you read in the Bible, Judah and Ephraim, they're really referring to the southern northern kingdom. Israel. Now, why, why does Ephraim get promises to be destroyed? Because it had allied itself with Damascus. And, <coughs> pardon me. And when it allied itself with Damascus, what, did it, what was it doing? It was, in effect, not putting its trust in God, but putting its trust in the surrounding nation, in the might of, of Aram against, to protect them from the might of Assyria. They had, in, a, in essence, forgotten their God. And just like Damascus, God prophesies here in, in verse 2 and 3 that they would be defeated as, and then they would be taken into captivity by Assyria. 
Now, this destruction was fulfilled in 722 B.C. And if you're kind of, a, you're just a, a kind of learning your dates in, in the Old Testament, there's really two major dates in the Old Testament that you need to know. Uh, it kind of helps shape sort of your understanding of many of the events. That's 722 B.C. is the first one, and 586 B.C. is the other. Okay? So 722 B.C. is when the northern kingdom was taken to captivity by Assyria, conquered by Assyria and taken into captivity. 586 B.C. is the final time that the Babylons conquered the, the southern kingdom and take them into captivity. So those two dates stand out. It's full, that's, this is fulfilled for us in 2 Kings 17, verse 6. And it's really neat if you kind of read 2 Kings 17, verses 7 through 18, God there then explains through, uh, through the prophet for why Israel was taken into captivity. I want to read for you some of those verses because it just stands out. It just matches exactly why God judges Ephraim. Here, verse 2 Kings 17, verse 7. Now this came about, that is their destruction, their being taken into captivity, because the sons of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up from the land of Egypt, from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and they had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel and in the customs of the kings of Israel, which they had introduced. Jump to verse 10. They set for themselves sacred pillars and asherim, these are idols, on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they burned incense on all the high places as the nations did, which the Lord had carried away to exile before them. And they did evil things, provoking the Lord. Jump to verse 15. They rejected his statutes and his covenant, which he made with their fathers, and his warnings with which he warned them. And they followed vanity and became vain and went after the nations, which surrounded them, concerning which the Lord had commanded them not to do like them. See, God's, promise, God's, God's destruction of Ephraim was because they had went after the nations. They had put their trust in the nations. They chased after the ways of the nations. They followed after the customs of the nations. They worshiped the gods of the nations. They behaved like the nations. And so God judged them for turning away from him, for forgetting him and turning instead to the nations. And it's not just the military might that they turned to, but they turned to these nations for their gods, for their, for their culture, for their customs. And they turned away from God. Just as an application for us uh, of this, of the lessons from Ephra, the judgment upon Ephraim here, is that it's easy for us to make the same kind of mistake. Not on a national level, but on a, in a sense of personal level, individual life level. You know, the reason even Ephraim, they turned to, uh, they turned to the nations because those were, they saw as sources of strength. And sometimes we can fall into the sin of trusting in other sources of strength, of, of power beside God, besides God. You know, we, we put our trust in, in politics. You know, our world politics is a source of power. We put our trust in physical might. We put our trust in connections, who you know. That, that is sometimes a, a source of power. We put our trust in our educational degrees, our knowledge. That is sometimes a source of power, and etc. Now, it's not that we can't be involved in these things or have these things or these things can be even good to some, to, to, to some extent. But we must not let these sources of strength, these sources of power come before God. We must not depend upon them before we depend upon God. We must not trust in them more than we trust in God. Because we know that 
And we must remember that God uses these things to accomplish his will. It's he who gives us government. It's he who gives us our strength. It's he who gives us an opportunity to have relationships with different individuals. It's he who gives us knowledge. The saying goes, don't trust in the hammer. Trust in the one who wields it. And that's the lesson. That's a good lesson for us. To, be like, to not be like Ephraim, who turned away from God, forgot God, and trusted in the nations, particularly the nation of Damascus, the Aram. Now, in the next part of the oracle, this, the oracle expands its focus now to focus on Jacob and Israel, not just Damascus and Syria, but it kind of backs up and focuses on all of Israel, the northern as well as the southern kingdom. Jacob is also another name for the nation Israel, the whole nation of Israel, the 12 tribes of, of Israel. Three times in this, in this um, section, verse 4 through 11, we're going to see the phrase, in that day. We'll see verse 4, verse 7, verse 9. <coughs> now, we've already noted that in our previous studies that this word, the day, especially in prophecy, is, a, is usually a reference for the future day of judgment when Christ returns. It's that day of the Lord, the day when the trumpet sounds, when he shall return, when, he is, when he'll come and he'll beginning the, 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 his, the, the end times, when he will establish his kingdom on earth, that kind of day when he'll judge his enemies. But sometimes the word day, when used uh, in, in these prophecies, can also refer to the imminent historical day of judgment. And uh, as we look at this passage, it, it seems like this is referring to that imminent historical day of judgment. It may have some application to the future day, but it's primarily focusing on the imminent historical day of judgment. Now, Isaiah then prophesies here of three things that will happen to Jacob, to the nation of Israel, when God brings his destruction upon them. Because God's going to destroy them too because of their failure to remember him. First of all, in verse 4 to 6, we learn that in God, because of God's judgment, Israel's glory will fade. Israel's glory will fade. We read in verse 46, Now in that day the glory of Jacob will fade, and the fatness of his flesh will become lean. It will be, even be like the reaper gathering the standing grain as his arm harvests the ears, or it will be like one gleaning ears of grain in the valley of Rephaim. Yet gleanings will be left in it like the shaking of an olive tree. Two or three olives on the topmost bow, four or five on the branches of a fruitful tree, declares the Lord, the God of Israel. Now if you recall, look to the end of verse 3, it describes here that the remnant of Aram, when God destroys uh, Damascus, there will be a remnant left in the land of, Dama- of Aram, of the nation Aram. But they will be, and that remnant will be like the glory of the sons of Israel. What is that glory like? Is described here in verse 4. That the glory of the sons of Israel will fade. It will diminish. That word fade means to become poor, to become low, to become weak. It's just as and so just as Israel's glory will fade, so is Damascus' glory, glory will fade as well. But God describes here, it's, a very, it's kind of a, just a really neat picture of love. Just very, uh, this, this prophecy is full of just imagery, usually from kind of the, the harvest and from the agricultural imagery. And describes the, the leanness, the, the gauntness of, of, um, of, of Israel as being like, Trees after, or the fields after of the harvest, you know, and, and even mentions the valley of Rephaim. You know, when Israel, Rephaim was a, a valley that was south of Jerusalem, where it was known for its uh, much uh, with its produce and the harvest would be would be grown. 
And, but God always gave instruction that after the harvest that for the people of God to not harvest everything. Don't just take every, just take, don't take every little fruit, every little grain, but leave a little bit in the line. Usually leave the corners even. And so there's, they, but God instructed them to leave a little bit just so that the poor could come through and, and pick the gleanings, just to pick whatever was left over so that they could be fed. So God describes Israel's glory fading like basically the, the fields after a harvest. There will be, all that will be left are just pickings for the poor. A few olives here, a few olives there, a few fruits hanging there. And that is what Israel will be like when Israel, and when Israel, both northern kingdom as well as the southern kingdom, are taken into captivity. There will just be a few people in the land. The harvest will be very little. Food will be scarce. Strength will be very little. The glory that once shone in the, high, in the heydays of Israel, in King David's day, in King Solomon's day, fades in comparison to the glory, to, or will fade to become like a, the fields after harvest. So not only will her glory fade, God says, because of his judgment, but we also learn, hopefully, and as encouragingly, that for Israel, her remnants will repent. Verse 7 and 8. In that day, man will have regard for his maker. His eyes will look to the Holy One of Israel. He will not have regard for the altars, the work of his hands, nor will he look to, to that which his fingers have made, even the asterim and incense stands. In the face of judgment, there will be a remnant in Israel. There will always be a remnant. And even though God takes the people, the people out of captivity, God preserves a remnant for himself. A remnant that will trust in the Lord, who will trust in God. Even back in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 20, we read there that God promised that in, the day, in that day, the remnant of Israel and those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them. That is, they're not going to trust in the mighty nations, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. That same truth is prophesied here in verse 7 to 8, that the people of God are not going to rely upon the nations anymore one day. They're going to learn after being judged by God, disciplined by God, to trust in Him. You look there in verse 7 and 8, they're kind of in parallel. Twice, two times, you'll notice the word, the verb regard and look in verse 7, and you'll see that same verb regard and look in verse 8. In verse 7, the people of God are going to have regard for their Creator. They're going to look to their God, the Holy One of Israel. And, inst- and they will no longer, verse 8, have regard for the altars, for the idols, the things of their hands. It's kind of neat. They're, not, they're going to regard for their maker, and they're not going to have regard for the things that they make, the idols that they make. They're going to look to the Holy One now instead of looking to the things that their fingers have made, the idols, the asherim, the incense. Those are kind of the, the different idols that they made. They will look to God once again. God's people are going to realize because of his judgment that they were foolish. They were fools to, to worship the, their idols, the ashram. Ashram were like, uh, seems like they were kind of wood, maybe wood, wooden things that, that, were, that were kind of maybe statues and, and that they were part of their worship and seemed to be closely uh, even associated with fertility and, and not just fertility in life, but even fertility of, the, of one's harvest. And so they, they were involved in, in idol worship but they will turn away and they will remember God. They'll have regard for their maker and, the, and, and, the whole, and they will look to the Holy One of Israel. 
And this is just for us, just encouragement for us to, when we are, we tend to, we tend to forget God, that we would return and have regard, remember our maker. For us not to worship the things that we make, the things of our hands, the things that man makes. We look to the things that man makes, the things that are, uh, that we think of are as sources of power, same source of strength, whether possessions or people or, or relationships. And, but instead, we need to worship the one who is, who is God, the one who has made us. He's the one who will stand. He's eternal. The remnant will repent. Thirdly, we look here, as, as God judges upon Israel, that her land will be desolated. The land is significant for Israel, as we know, because the land was, is part of the identity of the, of the nation Israel. God promised it to Abraham, not only a people, not only a, ki- a kingdom, but he promised to him a land, a land that he would live in, his, people, his, his descendants would live in. And so this land God provided for the nation of Israel, the land that they live in, the nation lives in today. But we read here in verse 9 to 11 that the land is going to be desolated as a result of God's judgment. Verse 9, in that day, their strong cities will be like forsaken places in the forest or like branches which they abandoned before the sons of Israel and the land will be a desolation. I love this picture here of strong, all their strong cities will be like forsaken places in the forest. You know how sometimes you kind of people, you hear this story about uh, some, some person was going through the Amazonian forest and then they came across, oh, whoa, hey, there's a city here, ruins here. Apparently there was some big civilization here that was here once before, but... It's gone. And that's kind of how it goes when civilization, even strong cities, when they are destroyed and if no one one comes to live there, basically the earth just kind of grows around it and just soaks it up and surrounds it and it's kind of forgotten, forsaken places. That's what's going to happen to the land of Israel. It's going to be forsaken. It's going to be left basically uh, uh, without many people and without people growing, without living, so that basically the land just grows up around it. And consumes and this, even the strong cities of Israel. They will be desolated at the very last part of verse nine. Their land will be a desolation. Now, verse ten is is a key, kind of a key verse in this whole section because it gives the reason for why God judges the nation of Israel. Verse ten and eleven: For you have forgotten the God of your salvation, have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Therefore, you plant delightful plants and set them with vine slips of a strange God. In the day you plant it, you carefully fence it in. In the morning, you bring your need to blossom, your seed to blossom. But the harvest will be a heap in a day of sickliness and incurable pain. Now, what was already implied in verse 7 to 8 is now stated clearly for all of Israel to understand that the reason why God is judging them is because they had forgotten their God. They'd forgotten the God of their salvation. They'd forgotten their maker. And verse 10 here is significant. It, and I write, write down Deuteronomy 32 because it has several allusions to the song of Moses that's recorded in Deuteronomy 32. The song of Moses is basically Moses' prophecy about the nation of Israel right before, uh, before he would die and before the people of God would enter into the promised land. But Moses wouldn't go, but he, so he would give this prophecy. <coughs> And there in Moses, particularly in Deuteronomy 32, verse 15 and 16, predicted that once Israel grew in prosperity, it's called, Israel is called Jeshurun in this verse, once they grew fat and, they, and, they would basically, and thick and sleek, they would forsake God, forsake God who made him. And they would scorn the rock of his salvation. That sounds really just like our passage in verse 10. 
verse, 30, verse 16 of 32, they made him jealous with strange gods. And we see that same reference here in our verse. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. God, Moses, God revealed through Moses that he knew that they would one day forget him. They would grow, they, he would bring them into land. They would forget the very one who saved them. They would forget the fact that God had taken them and saved them out of slavery in Egypt and brought them and led them into the promised land, gave them this land for them to dwell, for them to call their own. They'd forgotten the God of their salvation. They'd also forgotten who was the rock of their refuge. For 40 years, remember, they wandered through the wilderness, basically defenseless, without any fortifications, without any walls, with barely any food and drink, just enough for the day, the, de- the next day, the manna that he gave them. But God preserved them. God protected them from the enemies that surrounded them. And though he was a refuge to them, a rock of refuge, God had, God had protected them. They nevertheless forgot God. They forgot who was their protection. They turned to idols to help them in their harvest, as we read here. They turned to strange gods. It seems like it's, there's a picture here seeming that they had turned to, instead of worse trusting God, just for, even for their harvest, they, they turned to the idols. They, 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 they mixed in idols probably in their harvest. They planted maybe uh, different symbols of, their, of those idols in their fields, in their forests. But God says, that would, because they had turned away from trusting in him, because they had forgotten God, their harvest would be sickly and there would be a source of pain for them. These three prophecies of, of what will happen when God judges Israel would serve to remind them to not forget their God, to remember their God. And perhaps it would be later on when they are found in Babylon that they'd come back to read these texts, they'd remember that we've, the reason is because we've forgotten our God. We've forgotten him. We've left him out. We worshiped other gods. We followed other nations. For us today, it's very fitting for us because it's easy sometimes to judge Israel, but we do the same things. We forget God so readily. We forgot who saved us, right? All of us, you kind of go through, your, you think about the day when God saved you from your sin. God, God sent us his, or just think of all that God did for us to save us. He, God sent us his son, Jesus Christ his very own son, to die on the cross for our sins. And Christ came and he died and, so that, and rose from the grave so that we could have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And remember that day when someone shared with you the gospel or you heard the gospel and you, and you came and you, you just realized, man, there's forgiveness of sins, there's eternal life in Christ. How joyful we were about that and how that kind of influenced how we lived. But then as you, as you live the Christian life for a while, you kind of forget that joy. You forget the the, the significance of that event sometimes. And we live, God, live our lives forgetting him. And how many times it just, you kind of shared a testimony, you share with someone, oh, God just did something amazing, a miracle in my life. He cured me of a sickness. He helped me through this difficult time. He was a source of strength. He was a, he was a refuge. And then, you know, you know, maybe two years, a year, three years later, or a year, or well, maybe just a week later, we forgot. And we just forget, oh, when something happens, oh, we start worrying, we, get, you know, we start crying, we start you know, complaining. We forgot God. We forgot he was a refuge for us. We do it all the time. We do it too often. God wants us to remember him. To remember that he's, our, he's the God of our salvation. He's the, our maker. 
He's the rock of our refuge. He is the one who is faithful and will continue to be our rock as long as we keep trusting in him. So now the focus of this oracle takes another step back from Damascus Ephraim to Israel as a whole as a nation. Now it zooms out to look at all of the nations. In chapter 17, verse 12, through chapter 18, verse 17. Though the focus here is on the nations, the lesson is still the same. The same lesson that the people of God are not to forget God. They are to remember that security is not found in the nations, but in the Lord, their God. Why are they to find security in God and not in the nations? Because number one, A, or first point, the nations cannot resist God's power. Israel and Judah were tempted to look to the nations for their, for, their, for their power, for their strength. But God reveals here that the nations cannot resist God's power. Don't be afraid of the nations when you have God. Verse 12 to 14 of chapter 17. Alas, the uproar of many peoples who roar like the roaring of the seas and the rumbling of the nations who rush on like the rumbling of mighty waters. The nations rumble on like the rumbling of many waters. But he will rebuke them, and they will flee far away and be chased like chaff in the mountains before the wind or like whirling dust before a gale. At evening time, behold, there is terror. Before morning, they are no more. Such will be the portion of those who plunder us and the lot of those who pillage us. Verse 12 to 13 here describe the threatening roar of the nations, the peoples. The peoples is another, really another term, synonym for nations. Uh, it's refers, verse 14 confirms these are those who plunder us. These are the threats, the, 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 the nations that threaten of Israel, the nations that are against the people of God. And their threat is like the roar of the nations. You know, when we go out to the ocean, you know, you just, I love going by the ocean because it's just like, it's awesome. It's like just when you, the, the loud roar, the rush of the waves, and you just kind of like, you just stand close enough, especially on a kind of a windy day. Well, don't, don't stand too close, actually. It's dangerous. It is scary, right, how this, this, the, the power of those waves. And we've all heard stories of basically just people wading in those waters, just getting sucked out there because, you know, the undercurrent. This roaring is, of the waves is, describes basically the threat of the nations, the threat of the nations to Israel. It is a real, real threat. They are stronger than Israel. They are stronger than Judah and, and and they, they're roaring. But nevertheless, though they roar and they threaten, they cannot resist God's power. God, with a single word, rebukes them, verse 13. He simply just says, oh, go away. And they will flee away. And the description here is like, they're just simply like, the nations, though they roar, they're, they're threatening, they're going to be like chaff when God tells them to go away. They're like dust, you know, just you know, just stuff like, you know, that you just flick away or with a little wind that'll just blow it, it just blows away. That's the nations before God. They cannot resist his power. And what's more, the picture, verse 14 is a beautiful picture. It describes how God's power is so great that the nations they're, they're in the, are like a terror in the evening. You know, it's always a night when things seem more worse than they are, you know, when things are threatening, when you hear the sounds outside the window, you're like, ooh, what's that? Oh, it's just a raccoon. That's not the big deal. But it's just like, you know, it's like, ooh, it's a terror, right? So I hear. It's kind of scary, but God describes the nations like a terror at night. But then what does it say? Before morning, they're no more. 
That the nations, though, they threaten us. They're, they're, they're mighty and they're, they seem like they're going to just overcome us at any moment. God says, because of his strength, because he is going to judge them, by morning they'll be no more. They'll be gone. This is, and that'll be the, the portion, the future, the lot of those who threaten the people of God. That is, the day, that is what will happen to all nations who oppose the people of God. And that's God's promise for them. Now, it's kind of interesting here that though this is a, is a really a general kind of prophecy of all the nations, that this, was act, this, this promise here was, seems very specifically fulfilled even in the days of, of Isaiah. Later on, Isaiah 36 or 37, we'll see this story, and I can't wait to get there, of Sennacherib's defeat. Sennacherib was the king of Assyria. You know, as part of God's judgment, because Ahaz didn't trust God, God says, I'm going to turn Assyria on you. And Sennacherib turns against. He delivers, first of all, uh, Judah, but then he turns on Judah. He defeats many of the nations. But then, as the whole nation, as the army of Assyria is on the doorsteps of Israel, we find that God, Hezekiah, King Hezekiah at that time, prays to God. God answers. And in one night, God sends his angel to strike down 185,000 of the Assyrian army. And what does King Sennacherib do? He flees back home to, to Nineveh. He can do nothing. He's, he's lost 185,000 soldiers. He goes home and he gets uh, killed by his sons. But anyways, we'll get there. That is the power of God. The nations cannot resist God's power. Yes, Judah would have not... Physically, just looking at it, Judah would not, Jerusalem would not have resisted, been able to resist Assyria for much longer. But because God's power is greater than the power of the nations, and because Hezekiah put his trust in the Lord, God delivered him just as he promised, delivered Jerusalem and Judah just as he promised here in these verses. The nations cannot resist God's power, so don't put your trust in them. Secondly, the nations cannot exceed God's plans, according to 18, verse 1 and 7. That's why we also. Don't put our trust in the nations. Verse uh, 1 and 2, or verse 1 and 7, verse first two verses. Alas, O land of whirring winds, which lies beyond the rivers of Cush, which sends envoys by the sea, even in papyrus, vessels on the surface of the waters, go swift messengers to a nation tall and smooth, to a people feared, and, feared far and wide, a powerful and oppressive nation whose land the rivers divide. Now, I know it's your Bibles as well as my Bible, and some of, and many interpreters will see here basically a new oracle, a new kind of prophecy, a prophecy against a different nation, against the nation of Cush, or what we would call, which is where modern-day Ethiopia is. And, well, definitely a reference is made to Ethiopia here. But there's, you'll notice that there's this passage, this, this chapter does not have the title that began the other oracles, the title, the oracle of, or the burden of. And I think that's a hint for us, and I believe that's a hint for us. Uh, it's a hint that this is not a, a new oracle, but really it's a continuation of the previous oracle, or the, the existing oracle, the oracle against Damascus. Why? How so? Because it's the same problem. It's the same thing happening to Judah would already happen to Israel. Now, Damascus and Ephraim, they wanted to force Judah to join in their alliance, right? That's why God's pronouncing a judgment upon Judah, upon Damascus and Ephraim, because they wanted to, th- to get Judah to join their alliance. But here, in this verse, the land of wearing, wearing wings, which is also known as Cush, or Ethiopia, had sent their own envoys, their messengers, to Judah. 
with their own plans of another alliance to resist the power of Assyria. And this is kind of confirmed by kind of extra biblical uh, documents. There was a, a king of Ethiopia at this time. In fact, the king of Ethiopia was so strong that he actually ruled over Egypt. He controlled Egypt. And so he sent envoys around to the surrounding nations, including to, uh, very likely including Judah, to get them to join in their rebellion and their resistance against the Assyrian Empire. And so that's what uh, seems to be. And so God is now warning, through here now, warning Judah to, when, these, when the envoys of Cush come and they also want you to join in their alliance against Assyria, don't give in to them as Ephraim did with Damascus. Don't give in to them. See, but there is a reality here that, that we, we of living in this world that the world know, only knows the power of alliances. The power of alliances is, is real. It's a real strength, okay, in this world. But that's the best that our world knows. We can just go all the way back to the Tower of Babel. The people of God, they were one voice. They wanted to get together. They knew that by their strength, they could build a tower and a city so that they could not be scattered by God, is what they thought. That, this belief in alliances is leading to strength is, is what the world knows, but it's not what the people of God are to believe and understand. The people of God are to know that the only alliance that matters is alliance with God. Yes, businesses grow stronger by merging with other businesses, and named nations grow stronger through making treaties with, one, with, with other nations. But the people of God are strong not through mergers, not through alliances, but they are strong because they have an alliance and they have a trust in God who is almighty. And so beginning in verse 3, Isaiah has a message then for the nations. So he's here, though the envoys of Cush are in this case, but they could be envoys from any nations if they come and they say, join with us, Israel, and, and put your and trust in the nations instead of God. Here's the message for the nations. Verse 3 and following. This is verse 7. I'll read it all. All you inhabitants of the world and dwellers on earth, as soon as the standard is raised on the mountains, you will see it. As soon as the trumpet is blown, you will hear it. For thus the Lord has told me, I will look for my dwelling place quietly, like dazzling heat in the sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. For before the harvest, as soon as the bud blossoms and the flower becomes a ripening grape, then he will cut off the sprigs with pruning knives and remove and cut away the, the spreading branches. They will be left together for mountain birds of prey and for the beasts of the earth, and the birds of prey will spend the summer feeding on them, and all the beasts of the earth will spend harvest time on them. At that time, a gift of homage will be brought to the Lord of hosts from a people tall and smooth, even from a people feared far and wide, a powerful and oppressive nation whose land the rivers divide to the place of the name of the Lord of hosts, even Mount Zion. So the world's plan is different from God's plans. God's plan is, the man's plans is to ally with one another, ally with various other neighboring nations, find strength in, in the power, in the politics, in the people of these nations. But God tells them, God tells Israel particularly, the people of God particularly, to put their trust in him. And he tells as a warning to the nations, verse 3, particularly as a warning to the nations, you will know, just basically wait for him to take action. 
You will know it when God begins to take action. You will, you will hear the signal. You will see the standard. You will hear the trumpet. And by the way, this is just kind of just talking about prophecy. How, you know, the, the whole prophecy of trumpets, you kind of know your, your prophecy. That's significant when Christ returns. The trumpet will blow. And so, but we, we kind of diverge that you will know it. And then verse 4 to 7, God reveals his plan through Isaiah. See, God says, this is my plan, verse 4 to 7. And this is actually pretty, it's kind of very difficult to interpret uh, because he uses much figurative language here. But this is, it. this is essentially it. God says, here's my plan. I will look down from my dwelling place quietly. That's essentially, God says, this is my plan. First of all, he's, he's basically saying, I'm going to look down upon the world. I'm seated on my throne. He's seated on his throne in heaven. Then we know God is in heaven. Dwell, he's sitting there. That's his dwelling place. But he's going to sit there quietly. Though the nations roar, God doesn't get, oh, no, what's going to happen? Oh, man, oh, you know, he doesn't pull his hair out like I do. But he sits there quietly. And then he, there's two descriptions here. I love these descriptions. I, 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 you know, I was trying to figure this out for a long time. Uh, thankfully, just for good commentaries. But God sits there quietly in his dwelling place like dazzling heat in the sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. Yeah. You know, that, you tell, you know what does that mean, right? I mean, you understand the words. Oh, yeah, he's like a dazzling heat in the sunshine. Yeah, it says he's like the dew in the, in, in the harvest. What does that mean? What does that mean? What does that mean about God? Well, how... How connected, what is the relationship between heat and sunshine? It's completely interrelated. You cannot have sunshine without heat. What is the connection between a harvest and dew, rain? Absolutely essential. You cannot have a harvest without rain. And so what we see here is a picture, just a picture of God, is not only his transcendence where he's looking from, from his dwelling place in heaven, but he's saying his description of himself is that he is also very imminent. He's very near. He's actively involved in the world. He's like heat in the sunshine. He's like dew, the dew, how essential dew is for the harvest. He is actively involved in the world. He's involved in every little bar, bit of what's happening in the world, even though he's just sitting in heaven in his dwelling place quietly. God is presiding over our world. And then he uses verse 5. He says, but you'll know when he begins to take action. This is what's going to happen. Verse 5, using the image of a harvest, he's going to basically cut off and judge them. He's going to use like pruning shears. All the nations that rise up against the people of God and God himself will be stripped away. He will prune them. He will cut off the sprigs. He'll cut off the branches that are spreading out that shouldn't be growing where they are. And then verse 6 He'll just cast them aside, the, the, the cuts, cutting off, just to be, to be for, given to the, for the animals to eat, to be consumed by the beasts of the earth. So this is a picture of God's judgment. This is the, that, they, that God has a plan, and the, peop, and the nations, no matter what they try to do, cannot thwart it, cannot, over, cannot get around it. God's plans will be brought to fruition. In fact, God's plan will even use the nations. Verse 7 is kind of interesting. <coughs> God will not only, earlier the nation of Cush was used, they're the ones sent out envoys looking for help 
to, for the, looking to, for their alliance. But here in verse 7, God says, I'm going to even use the nation of the people of, of Ethiopia. Uh, using use the same descriptions of them. That they will then, these people of Ethiopia will come and they will pay homage to God. And what we see then is that God's plan involves that the nations that are not destroyed by him, the nations that do bow the knee and do worship, do submit to him, will come and offer homage to God. They will worship him. They will bow down before him. They will bring their, their, their riches and their glory to the place of where God, where God dwells. Now, this plan that we see here is consistent with God's plan. We, we see this all throughout the scriptures. This is usually, we think of this as being referred to as the future day of the Lord. We know that this will happen because one day Christ will return and he will defeat the, 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 the nations that are opposed to him and to the people of God. And he will bring them into submission and he will sit on the throne of David in the city of Jerusalem, and he will sit there, and all the nations will then flock to him in worship. People from every tribe and tongue will go there to worship him. This is described not only in the prophets, in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Lamentation, Daniel, and all the various prophets, as well as the minor prophets, we see this reference, but we see it also in places like the psalm, the psalm 110, the most quoted psalm in all the Old Testament, the messianic psalm, where Right now, Christ is seated at God's right hand in, in heaven. Until when? Until the, I will make the nations your footstool. God's going to make the nations the footstool where they're going to come and bow before the Lord Jesus Christ. We see, we've seen it in Isaiah as well. It's back in Isaiah chapter 2. The nations are going to go say, hey, let's one day in the future day, they're all going to say, let's go to the temple. Let's go to Jerusalem because that's where we can learn about the Lord. That's where the knowledge of God is. And then chapter 11 as well of, Gen- of Isaiah, where pe- the nations are going to resort to the root of Jesse. This is God's plan. Sometimes when we think about God's plan in history, we, we stop and we, we think we focus upon the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And to this point in history, that is the greatest day in all human history. It is the greatest day. It is uh, no doubt the day when Christ died on the cross for our sins, all our sins were paid for once and for all, and he provided, Christ's death provided for the forgiveness of sins. But as magnificent and as powerful as that moment was in history, it is not the, com- the culmination of God's plans. The, there's so much of God's prophes- prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled, and the ones that are still to be fulfilled are pointing to this day, the day of the Lord. The apex and pinnacle of God's plans is when Christ shall sit on the throne of David, having vanquished his enemies and ruling as king of kings and lord of lords. And the whole earth will worship him. And we who worship him now will also be there worshiping him. We see it, and we see this how, this is how the, the Bible ends in Revelation 19 to 22 when Christ returns and establishes his throne. This is God's plan. All the nations will be destroyed that oppose him. And all the nations that don't oppose him will come and pay homage. That is the plan. And they will worship not only God, but they will worship his son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the God of our salvation. He is the God whom not only the nations will bow down to. And so if he is the one whom the nations bow down to, then he is to be the God that we bow down to. We are not to put our trust in nations. We are to press our trust in the Lord, our God the one whom everything is going to be rolled up for into a new heavens and a new earth 
for Christ, for God. So let us not trust in the nations. Let us remember God. It's so easy. I, by the way, man, same thing happened, by the way, huh? Uh, in first service, I just got carried away, and I, I forgot to give the rest of the points. Anyways, yeah, they're up there for you. There's an alliance, and then God's plans. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we, time to time, do forget God. And, but it is a dangerous thing if we forget God for a long extended period and we start worshiping the things of this world, our creation, the things of creation instead of the creator. It will lead to a, a judgment from God just as it is huh, here. But we need to remember who the God of our salvation is. We need to remember who our rock and refuge is. And as we do so, no matter what you're facing in life, uh, whether trials or even, I, I would venture to guess that the greater, the greater time, the greater temptation to forget God is when we actually face prosperity. When things are going well, we don't think we need God. Whatever face, situation in life you may be facing, may you remember your God. May you remember the rock of your refuge. May you remember your maker. May you trust in him. He is faithful. He has a plan. And it will come to pass. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for these truths. And I pray that you would, no matter where each one individual here is in their life, maybe they're going through times of prosperity and they're tempted to forget you. But maybe they're going through trials and they're, they're tempted to doubt you. And Lord, we may be tempted to turn to our own means to human means, to human strength, to human wisdom, to human powers. But Father, cause us to remember that you are the God of our salvation, the rock of our refuge, our maker. Lord, help us to remember that you, just as, just as you judged Israel for turning away from you, Lord, you will discipline us, that there will be a cost, there will, not be, there will be agony. And though, Lord, we may be going through agony even now, help us to Instead, know that the way of escape is through you, through trusting in you. Father, help us to lean upon you in the days ahead. Help us to continue to trust in you, to not forget, but to remember. Thank you, Father, for your word that does cause us to do so. Thank you for this passage. Pray that you would encourage your people through it. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.